You want to achieve great things? You want to reach the next level? Well, so does every other entrepreneur. You know what that means? You have to take every competitive advantage possible. Welcome to Let's Talk Business, the show where we're going to show you how to create this competitive advantage by being more productive and sharing the secrets of the world's top performers. I'm your host, Kenny Aronson, and I think it's time to get down to business. Here at the Da Vinci Mindset Podcast, we're passionate about self-development and about reaching your full potential. An important part of reaching your full potential is overcoming your limitations, and to do this, sometimes you need a helping hand. Today, I'm excited to introduce my friend Joshua Wolf. Today, we're going to talk about how to help people, how to get over fears, past mistakes, pain, and trauma, and how to develop a love for learning. So I'm very excited to bring you my conversation with him today. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and welcome Joshua Wolf to the show. Hey, Joshua, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing well. Thank you so much. It's good to have you here, Josh. I greatly appreciate you coming on to the show today. So the way I usually start off the, the things with my show, I always start with just a, a basic question so that me and the audience can get to know you a little bit. So Josh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to in this awesome world? All right. Uh, as you mentioned a little bit ago, I, I recently uh, received a position as a professor of psychology at Rose State College uh, in Midwest City, Oklahoma, teaching uh, an introductory psychology class, and just bringing uh, a little bit of knowledge about uh, how the mind works uh, to the students there. Uh, I am also a host of a podcast, uh, as well as a um, intern uh, to become a professional counselor uh, here in Oklahoma. Okay, very cool. So in the future, where do you see yourself going with all this? Do you have any dreams or ambitions that you really want to strive for in the world? Yeah, I think really uh, it's going to be a mixture of academics as well as being a professional counselor. Uh, what the blend of um, teaching versus being a counselor is. Uh, really, it seems like I'll lean a bit more towards being a professor and do about 25% of my time uh, actually counseling clients, uh, but still yet to be seen. Okay, wonderful. So I'm curious, what attracted you to counseling and psychology for your professorship and your career? Well, I, really growing up, uh, I grew up overseas. Uh, my, my parents were missionaries and getting to see different people and how they interacted with each other, uh, learning about why people behaved in different ways. Uh, and then really when I was in my early 20s, I had a formative relationship where someone was going through a hard time and I, I really had this burden to understand why they were going through this. Uh, and just as a personal development, I wanted to uh, learn more, and be able to understand more, which led me down this path of uh, taking classes about psychology and eventually earning a, a bachelor's and a master's in psychology and behavioral studies. Okay, Josh, I think that's, that's fantastic. And I th everyone has a story that they go through where, you know, something may, might have happened early on in their life that, that really, you know, strives them to achieve their goals. So what exactly do you want to accomplish in academics? Do you want to help people, you know, love learning and, and love psychology? Is that your overall goal? Yeah, I really want to be able to help people make uh, psychology and really an understanding of themselves and, and those around them uh, a personal experience. A lot of people have those stories, um, either it's something they're going through or they see family or friends going through 
being able to uh, to take what most people just see as facts and knowledge about people who have died uh, and the, the knowledge they came up with, Freud, uh, Maslow, all these uh, great theorists, and make it personal. How does it help them understand themselves better and how does it help them understand uh, their family and friends? Okay, Josh, thank you. And I'm curious, how do we make it more personal? How do we make our learning more personal? Well, I think uh, finding examples in your own life um, for me, the way I learn best is not trying to remember that Phineas Gage had a steel bar go through his head and he changed his behavior. It was uh, a friend who, after going to war, had tra a traumatic brain injury. And just seeing him go through that experience, finding an example in your own life so that you can remember important uh, information and be able to apply it uh, elsewhere in life. Okay, I think that's a, a very good way to structure things because I, I focus a lot on helping people to understand how they learn and association is one of the biggest keys. So I really like how you're, you're, you're trying to relate to what you're learning to what's already happened in your life. And I, yeah. I want to I segue kind of into a little bit about what you specialize in. So I'm curious, how can we better help the people around us? Well, I think um, understanding uh, our own past uh, and uh, the things that helped shape our worldview, uh, I, I picture it as uh, the lenses in a pair of glasses. I think everybody's born with a genetic set of glasses. Uh, we come into this world and the experience we have from birth can shape those glasses in any different direction. They can make them rose-colored. They can make them focus stronger on the negative or be a little more optimistic. And if we understand that um, the experiences we've had shape how we interpret new information, new experiences, um, new people, how do we see them uh, and the things they do, if I can understand that, I can begin to work on my glasses. I can begin to uh, work on my own view of other people and, and take that into account in the same way I can help other people uh, with their glasses. When it's begin, beginning to have problems in their life, uh, they're beginning to see patterns of dysfunction because of how they see the world, these, these themes that they believe about the world. Um, if I can help them to correct some of those distortions, um, they will hopefully begin to see less and less dysfunction in their life. Okay, thank you, Josh. I, I really like what you said about helping other people with their glasses. So let's take an example. Let's say that I have someone in my life who has a, an overly negative view about the world and what happens to them. What could we specifically do to start helping these people and to start helping their glasses? Well, I think a lot of people um, tend to have uh, very broad beliefs and they tend to overgeneralize uh, negative information. So if they do poorly on a test, they will say, well, I'm just no good at school. No, you are no good at that test. Um, when we can help them uh, to challenge their own logic, to challenge those distortions, and sometimes they call them ants. We get ants in our lives, these automatic negative thoughts. When we can realize that we're having things pop up into our head that are, are negative, that 
we didn't logically come up with. They just popped up into our head and we believe them just outright. Um, you know, sometimes I'll walk through a crowd and I think somebody calls my name. Nobody called my name, but I, I believed that somebody did. Or if I thought I saw somebody I knew, but I, and, and I look and I search for that person, I believed my brain that I had heard that. Well, in the same way, we have automatic negative thoughts pop into our head and we automatically believe them. We don't challenge and we don't have this logical, well, no, I, I can't find them, uh, so it must not be true. We just end up believing it. Uh, and that spirals into uh, other things in our lives that, that are negative. So uh, I think, to your point, uh, if we can help them logically challenge uh, and learn to apply a Socratic method of questioning to their life, um, that will help them with perhaps a negative thoughts. Okay, thank you. So I like your anal not it's not an analogy, but an acronym about ants. So what are some specific questions that, you know, let's say that I have some of these negative thoughts, what are some specific questions that I might be able to ask myself? And let's say that these negative thoughts might be about my intelligence or my ability to learn. Okay. So uh, perhaps um, you can say, when is a time uh, when this was not true? When is a time that um, I, I did feel intelligent? When is a time that uh, other people uh, either told me or made me to feel as though I were intelligent? And kind of debunk this um, overgeneralization of I am always unintelligent. Um, and then, then when we can, we can realize there are outliers and there are exceptions to the rule, well, then it's not a rule, it's just a trend. Uh, and then when, when we start to see that, well, it's a trend, but I'm getting good grades or I'm doing well in a social life or um, the other things that I mark intelligence by, realistically, only 25% of them are doing poorly. 75% of the time, I can feel like an intelligent person if I really thought about it. So once we debunk these all or nothing kinds of thinking, uh, we can start to see more and more of, you know, I, I really do feel like I'm competent in the things I want to be competent in. Okay. Thank you, Josh. I, I think that's a very good answer and, and I appreciate your answer. So let's say that, you know, there, there's a lot of people out there who, who might think that they're not good at math or they're not good at science. So is this actually the case or is it a self-limitation that they place on themselves? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think for a lot of people it is that they are, um, excuse me one second. Okay, that's fine. I, I think for a lot of people, they tend to um, have a, an unrealistic view of what that entails. Perhaps they've got external markers in their life that um, it's only about test grades or it's only about um, some other measure of intelligence. Uh, if only they were, were more talkative in class, they would seem as intelligent as someone else. Um, when we can start to get more and more realistic measurements for ourselves uh, of what intelligence may look like, 
we can begin to have more and more confidence in, in our own abilities. Thank you, Josh. So what are some realistic measurements for intelligence in your perspective? Well, you know, intelligence uh, is a loaded word. Uh, I think you have people saying intelligence testing. Uh, there are different domains of intelligence. Uh, you may have somebody who's uh, brilliant at emotional intelligence. They can read people. They can interact with people, know how to behave in a certain situation, but they're not good at arithmetic. Does that mean that they're not intelligent? No, it just means that there's a small slice of uh, their world that they still struggle in. Um, in the same way, people who are brilliant at engineering and mathematics and uh, other higher order learning, but still struggle in social domains, they may not be great public speakers. Um, does that mean that they're, they're not smart or not intelligent? No, they're brilliant. Um, but if, if what we're measuring it off of is not what they measure it off of, we may have cross definitions of, of intelligence. I certainly agree. I think that, you know, there's no one standard for intelligence. There's multiple types. And I just want to steer this conversation back a little bit towards what we were talking about before. I, I really enjoyed talking to you about intelligence and I certainly learned a lot. And I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, how we can help more people. So who do you think typically needs the most help and how can we do it? Well, I think the people that need help are the people that are beginning to see a dysfunction in their life. Um, for example, we have students in our program who have severe anxiety about their academic performance. Uh, they may say, well, you know, I get really nervous. I mean, I've got this anxiety that I'm not going to get all my papers done. And I have, uh, you know, I procrastinate a bit. And I, I wait until the last minute and I'm really worried that I'm going to do poorly. Well, my question to them is, have you ever done poorly? No. Well, I, I, you know, I, I wait until the last minute to write my papers. Okay. Well, what'd you get on your papers? Well, I get nineties and 95s and hundreds. Okay. So it seems like that anxiety is working for you. It seems as though that that may be the, the motivation. I mean, motivation is, a kind of anxiety. We have this anxiety that I need to do something. And for some people, they're able to um, use that, that low-level anxiety to motivate them to do schoolwork from the beginning of the semester. Uh, we have people who, who start working on papers and start doing drafts and outlines and research and they get their um, references all down from the beginning of the semester because their, their low-level anxiety tells them you need to do this. Other people, as anxiety says, you know, you can wait until later in the semester. And it, it's not until their anxiety hits a critical mass that they'll start working on that, that paper. But if that works for them, that's, those aren't the people we want to, to help. Because honestly, they don't, I mean, they may feel like they have anxiety, and they do but it's not dysfunctional. When you start to see pro them have problems in school, uh, in work, in their social life, um, if they have unhealthy coping means to deal with that anxiety uh, and they start chronically drinking or using other substances, <coughs> excuse me, those are the people 
that we want to help. Thank you, Joshua. So let's say that, you know, I am someone who I have a lot of anxiety about my test grades, about my academics, but I'm still not getting the best results. And it does result in me going into alcohol or drugs. What are the next steps you would recommend me to take? So I think um, helping people explore what are healthy ways of coping with anxiety. Um, as a, uh, a therapist in training, one of the things they're very conscious of teaching us about is self-care. Uh, how do you take care of yourself? How do you recharge your own emotional battery so that way when you do encounter stress, do encounter and work with other people who you uh, invariably take on some of their stress, um, are, are we uh, where we need to be? In the same way, if people don't know healthy ways of coping with stress and anxiety, um, they can turn to more maladaptive and harmful means um, of, of dealing with it. So sometimes it's, it's not out of a, a maliciousness or um, a moral faith they turn to drugs or alcohol. It's just they don't know. They've never taught. Um, we, we learn, we are socialized in how to deal with uh, stress and anxiety. If we see our, our father or our mother turn to alcohol, we learn that that's a valid way of doing it. But if somebody says, you know, if you exercise and eat healthy and sleep well and uh, maybe take vacations or um, do these healthy means, wow, that actually works. I thought that was just for, for weirdos and people who had more money. <laughs> no, there, there are ways to do it at all walks of life. Uh, and so it's just they didn't know. So the first step to answer your question is, is kind of a psychoeducation and teaching them. Okay, perfect. Um, you, you mentioned a couple of healthy ways to, you know, get over your anxiety, such as exercise, eating, and vacations. Are there any more that you would recommend to students out there? Yeah. Um, one of the things uh, that I really uh, enjoy teaching people about, we have technology now. And one of the things uh, that is more and more prevalent uh, in counseling and psychology is this concept of mindfulness and mindful meditation. Um, while there are some meditations that um, are, are not scientifically backed, uh, mindfulness meditation is this concept of really being in tune with our bodies, uh, in, in tune with our what we call the somatic symptoms. Uh, how, do, how do I feel when I breathe? Can I feel the rise and fall of my chest as I breathe? Uh, do I feel this sensation of tension in my shoulders and my arms? Do I feel the weight of my body as it presses into the chair? And as we can become more and more mindful of where we are and the physical sensations that we're feeling now, it takes us less and less out of the future, which is anxiety, and less and less out of the past, which is depression. Thank you, Josh. I, I really find that, you know, meditation and mindfulness are extremely helpful. And you talked about some, some types of meditation that aren't scientifically backed that might not be very effective. What are some examples of these? Um, you know, I, I, uh, I haven't explored them. Uh, so I would be interested to see what other people are trying. However, the, the education I've, I've been getting is more and more into the mindfulness. I'm sure there are other ones where they're they're focusing on donuts and coffee, and I'm not sure that that's the best. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't tried too many of those out, but you know, if I, if I find any of them, I'll certainly refer them to you for a, a better analysis. But you know, one of the things that you know, that there's, there's obviously a lot of people out there who might need help, whether it's through self-help or counseling. But I'm curious, why are some people hesitant to receive this type of help through counseling? I think that generally there's been a stigma uh, against those who have to come to professional help. It's being seen as uh, a weakness or a moral failing that maybe they didn't rely on their faith strongly enough, or maybe they just have a weak personality. And that's really not the case. We, we find that the people who, who are strong enough um, are the ones who take care of themselves. Uh, you, you wouldn't fault somebody for taking their car to get serviced. Well, if, if you had take, taken better care of your car and driven it better, uh, you wouldn't have to get the oil changed or you wouldn't have to um, get new tires put on. Maybe you could have done that yourself. No, they, they realize that there are people who know more than them uh, and can teach them, but also help them take care of themselves when they're not able to. Okay, thank you. And let, let's say that, you know, someone listening right now, they might have someone in their life who they do need help, but they do believe in the stigma against people who go to see professional help. How would you convince them or get to get them the professional help that they need? Um, I think when we can start to medicalize some of the model, um, mental health and a lot of the disorders and the symptoms that we see in, in life are um, you know, can be caused by chemical imbalances in the brain. And there's plenty of research, scientifically and peer-reviewed research, um, to support that depression, anxiety, uh, other mood disorders um, do result from um, some chemical imbalances in the brain. And it's not a, a failing on their own part. Uh, it's just um, how, how we're designed. Uh, you know, at some at some level, anxiety served a purpose um, <clears throat> for those who um, have, um, you know, ancestors who lived in the, the wilderness and there was a threat of being eaten by a wild animal, anxiety kept you alive. Well, now we live in a, a modernized world where the threat of wild, uh, wild animal attack is not as prevalent but we, we still have that uh, innate um, wiring for anxiety. Uh, and so it, it's become maladaptive uh, in kind of the situations that people are seeing. Um, so all this to say, we're wired for uh, some of these dysfunctional things. And so when we can see that there are people who, who understand this and who have um, advanced training on how to help people, um, it, it becomes easier rather than saying, well, no, it's just a, mer a moral failing. If you had only tried harder, you'd be able to, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you've certainly got a good point. And so if I, I know that, you know, I think it's a, it's a really big cultural issue. And uh, eventually I think we'll get to the point where we'll become a little bit more normal. But what's something that you can do right now for one of your loved ones? to help them get the help they need? Um, I think helping them find uh, accessibility uh, and even privacy. Uh, there are uh, online 
distance-based um, counseling. Um, Talkspace uh, is one example where people can um, text a therapist or they can make a, a phone call in the privacy of their own home. Um, if we can help them meet their loved ones and help their loved ones meet a counselor where they are, um, accessibility and privacy uh, can help overcome the stigma and then what they may see as a shame in needing a, a therapist. Okay. Thank you, Joshua. I certainly agree. There, there's a, a lot of different tools that people can use nowadays to get the help that they really need. And so a, a lot of this stems from fear and fear is also rampant in you know, self-limitations that people put on themselves. And so this fear ends up holding people back from achieving their dreams. So in your perspective, what do you think creates the fear which holds many people back from achieving their dreams or goals? Well, I think uh, comparison uh, is one of the biggest things. You know, we've got a large social media um, platform that has helped a lot of people uh, connect with loved ones, connect with friends uh, across the global world. But it's also set up this issue of comparison where online people present the best of themselves. Uh, we, we see people present only the times in which they're winning, but people don't see the struggle. And so when people lose sight of the reality of a struggle, the reality and the normalness that it is to feel afraid, the, to feel like I can't um, be good enough because uh, I don't act like these celebrities or I, I'm, I don't have this IPO that's coming out like this uh, entrepreneur. They're, they're only seeing um, the good side of these people and reacting out of fear. So when we can either A, help them uh, reintegrate into a community and reintegrate into some friendships where they're, they're seeing the vulnerability, they're seeing um, that this fear is not paralyzing, this fear is something to be uh, accepted and noted as if, oh, thank you, mind, for telling me that, that I'm afraid. However, I'm still going to act. I'm still going to act out of a, a boldness and courageousness because that's, it's normal to feel fear, uh, but when it begins to paralyze us, that's when we are losing uh, sight of how the world really, really behaves. Thank you, Josh. So how can we not let fear paralyze us? Uh, I really think it starts off with small actions. When we can begin to have some momentum and some wins in small arenas, um, then we can start to build that confidence. Um, so, you know, uh, there's a, a great movie called What About Bob? Uh, and had this actor who was agoraphobic. He was afraid of wide open spaces and afraid of people and afraid of germs and whatnot. And he, he had this mantra and it was called baby steps, baby steps out the door, baby steps down the stairs, baby steps down the sidewalk. Same way in our life. If we are overcome with fear, identifying what are some of the baby steps we can take? What are some of these small wins that we can use to gain momentum in our lives? If we have to set the bar really, really low, for us to step over it, well, we've got confidence. Now we can begin to raise the bar 
and build our confidence and build our self-efficacy. Okay, thank you. And, I, and I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball here. So let's say that I have a, a fear of success. So I have a fear of leaving my friends and family behind. What are some baby steps that you think I could possibly take to get over this? Hmm, that is a curveball. <laughs> I think uh, a fear of success is probably not the fear of success. And I think, um, you know, it, it takes a shift in perspective to understand some of these things. Um, it, like you, you mentioned, it's not the fear that we're going to succeed. It's what does that change? What does that change about who I am, uh, how other people see me, how I'm going to pre be perceived? What doors will it open that I, I'm, I don't know what's behind those doors? It has that anxiety. Uh, and so when we can begin to identify what are the, the real fears underneath that fear of success, what we call a fear of success, then we can begin to to really have some meaningful conversations. Maybe it's, I'm going to be successful and I'm afraid how my parents are going to see me differently or how my family's going to see me differently. Okay, well, then perfect. we can really start talking about what's the healthy communication look like? How do we healthily, healthily communicate with our family about those fears and help them to either confirm, you know, this, this will change things or no, no, this isn't going to change anything. No matter if you're successful, You'll always be our son, and we'll always love you. Okay, thank you for that, jo that answer, Josh. It, it's wonderful. I think that you know a lot of people, they they kind of hold themselves back from you know what you really want to do in life, and you know just taking small actions is a is a great way to start heading in a positive direction. And yeah. on that note, I think that this is a, a good time to take just a, a really quick commercial break. So we'll be back in just a few minutes with the Da Vinci Mindset Podcast. Welcome back, everyone to the Da Vinci Mindset Podcast. In the first half of this episode, I've had a very interesting conversation with my friend Joshua Wolf. We've talked about overcoming limitations, how to help people, intelligence, and I've got a whole array of topics ready for the second half of this interview. So welcome back, Josh. It's good to have you on here. So let's dive in right into the next question, and it's this. How do we overcome trauma and events of the past? I think trauma and events of the past, uh, kind of like I talked a bit about before, change how we view the world. Um, for many people who have loving and kind families, they've learned that the world is safe, people can be trusted, and I know who I am. Uh, when they go through trauma and other serious events, it changes how they view the world. A world in which I thought was safe, maybe is not as safe as I thought it was. Um, sometimes you have uh, soldiers who drive down the road and they have an, uh, an explosive device explode and uh, they get injured. Well, they come back to the United States and they're driving down the road. They didn't see the bomb before. They didn't know that it was going to go off. Uh, and so uh, if a plastic, bla plastic bag blows into the road, their mind automatically says, is this a bomb? Uh, and that can begin to affect how they behave and how they operate and uh, where their mind goes. Even when they're in uh, a relative place uh, of safety uh, here back in the United States. Uh, in the same way, other people who go through trauma, it changes how they view the world. Um, so that trauma begins to uh, affect them kind of with the other um, uh, topics we've talked about um, 
where we help them is in helping them to assess the logic. Uh, is it logical that there would be an improvised explosive device on the roads of Oklahoma? No, it's not highly likely. Uh, and as we expose them to um, these feelings and the emotions that they have, uh, their, their body and their mind begins to become more and more accustomed to that feeling. The way trauma and PTSD work is uh, people have a, a sensation of fear and anxiety and they learn that either through a panic attack or avoidance or fighting or um, self-harm, whatever bad behavior, they've learned that that's a way that they can control um, the, the anxiety, uh, teaching them that uh, if, if they confront that feeling and they, they can sit in it uh, and let that feel of fear wash over them um, as they, as they be, are exposed to that feeling, it begins to have less and less effect on them. Uh, and that's kind of the exposure therapy, uh, prolonged exposure therapy, uh, and some other trauma-focused um, modalities of dealing with trauma um, really emphasize the exposure part of treating trauma. Thank you, Josh. So let's say that we have a patient who they have PTSD, whether it's from the military or, or some similar experience. Using this this um, you know method of confronting the, the the PTSD and the events of the past, how long would it typically take them to get over the PTSD? Uh, if it's an isolated event, uh, many people have begun to see a great reduction in symptoms uh, of PTSD in six to eight weeks um, from even just one hour a week. They do have homework. They do have uh, homework where they'll go home and, and identify and journal about uh, some of the things that they um, find trigger this anxiety. Um, other times they're, they're told to journal uh, and maybe write about uh, their sensations that they're feeling, the anxiety they're feeling, but also just uh, journal about um, what they remember from the event. Um, and this is kind of a self-exposure where they will, uh, as they write about it, they'll write their narrative of what happened, uh, and it may be, may be triggering for them. They may uh, have anxiety. Um, but as they go through this process over and over and over again, by the end, they tell their therapist, you know, can we do something different? This is boring. Well, good. <laughs> we want it to be boring because then, then you don't have this reaction to it. Um, so, yeah, about six to eight weeks uh, when you get into more complex trauma where uh, it's really, really affected the way they view the world. Say a child who uh, has been in an abusive home, been into... Uh, foster care system where they're bouncing uh, back and forth um, from home to home. It really affects how they view the world and adults in general. And so it really takes uh, a bit longer. Um, and so it may take a um, couple months to a year uh, to really unpack and process all that trauma. So for, for a child who went through a situation like that, do you use the same techniques of confronting the events of the past and journaling? Yeah, I think um, a, a lot more. There are different techniques. It really depends on the specific trauma and really what the, the child reports uh, because 
PTSD uh, in children and a trauma reaction in children, unfortunately, looks a lot like ADHD. Uh, you have kids who are hyperactive, hypervigilant. They're looking around. They're not concentrating. Maybe they're fidgety because uh, their brain's doing everything it can to not think about that trauma. Well, that looks a whole lot like ADHD. And unfortunately, our society has gone more and more towards medicating children with ADHD. And unfortunately, maybe it's not treating what we want it to treat. Uh, and so when it comes to working with these kids, um, therapists uh, in the field of working with childhood trauma have a large toolbox of uh, interventions and methods to, to treat that. Thank you, Josh. And so let, let's say hypothetically that we have a, a listener who's a teenager, a young adult or an adult who was diagnosed with traditional ADHD. Instead of just going the traditional medication route, what are some, some habits or some techniques that you would recommend them to practice so that they can you know, be in a better situation for themselves? Um, for uh, patients who have uh, true clinical ADHD where their mind uh, is not able to regulate attention span, uh, they've got hyperactivity, uh, they're, they're fidgety, and they're, uh, building routines um, in their life where maybe they have to have shorter study sessions. Maybe it's uh, an issue of accommodations where uh, we have to work with the schools and the teachers and parents to understand, you know, physiologically, they're just unable to do it. So why are we going to place demands on them that they physically cannot do? Um, helping them to become advocates for themselves. Hey, this is something I need in my life. Um, there's the American Disability Act. Uh, if they want to go to college and they have ADHD, contacting the resource office at that school and saying, you know, um, I want to attend college, uh, but here are some of the accommodations I need. Uh, I can't sit and take a test in a traditional quiet for an hour and a half testing facility. Um, is there a way in which I can uh, have somebody proctor it uh, in the library or during a different time? Uh, so as they become an advocate for themselves and they're able to get more and more accommodations to help them uh, achieve the success that they rightly deserve. Um, I think building up those routines and um, finding ways that work for them to get the knowledge, get the material, uh, and work through it at their level uh, and their pace uh, is crucial. Thank you, Josh. I think that's a very good answer. So I, I want to talk a little bit more about you know how we can start to achieve more and more, go for more of our dreams. So here's what I want to ask you. Self-limitations, they hold many people back. So how can we start to overcome these? Um, I, I really want to explore where these limitations uh, come from. Is it a belief about myself? I would uh, say, yeah, a belief about yourself, definitely. Okay. So if, if we have beliefs about ourselves that um, I, I'm going to fail or I... Um, I'm just not smart enough. Whatever these limitations are, are bound up in, uh, they're really, um, I think, what we would call a schema, uh, a, a theme, a, a belief about ourselves and about the world. So if we can challenge those 
Um, and I think it goes back to small successes. We can use small successes to change uh, our beliefs about ourselves. Um, and then um, where, where can we uh, have success? Um, you know, I think um, the inventor of the light bulb, uh, Thomas Edison, failed 990 times uh, to make a light bulb. Well, he, he says, I didn't fail 999 times. I just, I just crossed off 99, 999 things that wouldn't work to make a light bulb. He, was, he saw it as a narrowing down uh, to find what actually worked. In the same way, if we can begin to reframe what we see as um, limitations as, um, well, it's not a limitation. It's just not where I want to focus my attention. It's not where I want to focus my energy. Uh, if I'm not good at basketball, I'm like, well, I, 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 I'm, failure, I'm a failure at basketball. Well, no, that's not my strength. If we can see ourselves through a position of strength and operate from our strengths rather than focusing on the weaknesses, uh, we'll begin to have more and more successes. Okay, thank you, Joshua. So would you just say that, you know, these limitations or beliefs about yourself, it's just all a matter of perspective? Correct. Yeah, I think um, when we uh, judge a bird by its ability to swim, we um, or we're, we're comparing it to fishes. It, that's not its forte. Uh, its forte is in flying. Uh, and so when we begin to judge it against uh, its, its own class, its own uh, set of circumstances and abilities, then we see that it is a successful flyer. Uh, we don't call it a failure at swimming. We just say it's a successful flyer. Okay, wonderful. I certainly agree with you. Everyone has their own strengths, and it's very good to focus on these strengths. And one of the things that I've really learned over the years from talking to many people and working with people is everyone's capable of far more than they could ever imagine. And, you know, this is in terms of, you know, what you, what you learned throughout school. And so I, I want to talk a little bit more about learning. So, Josh, why do you love learning? I love learning because it opens doors. You know, uh, I always thought that the, mo the strongest person in any high school is the janitor because he has the keys to every door. He, he doesn't. <laughs> I love he, that. He can, he can open up any door. He may not choose to. He may never open one door, but he has the ability to if he wanted to. Uh, in the same way, uh, learning uh, and gaining more information in our life um, gives us keys to unlock doors if we need to. Okay, wonderful. I certainly agree with that. And so what's one of the most important things that you've learned throughout your life? Um, be kind to myself. Uh, for a long time, I was very hard on myself and, and judged myself by uh, standards that were unrealistic. Um, when I really got a core group of friends who I could uh, share my hopes, my dreams, but also my fears, um, I could begin to hear uh, their validations and say, no, your, your fears are unrealistic. Um, at, rather than um, judging myself off of Instagram or Facebook or um, TMZ. Okay, thank you. I, I think one of the things I want to talk about is, you know, there's a lot of people out there who they, they might have been, you know, I, I don't want to put too negative a connotation on it, but they were kind of forced to the public educational system. So after going through all this, were they 
they might not have gotten the best results and they really didn't enjoy it. So as a result, they, they, they start hating learning. They start hating education. So after this, after they go through all the schooling, they might find themselves stuck in a job. And because of their hatred for learning, they don't, you know, I mean, they'll, they'll still learn a little bit to learn to do the job, but they won't learn or grow anymore. So how do we help these people to start loving learning again, loving their own education? Well, I think it's finding something we're passionate about. Um, and even if it's not something that's in the normal realm of academics, um, I, I don't think I will ever read for fun a book about grammar or a book about mathematics. <laughs> But I, I may learn more about nature. Uh, I may learn more about hiking or mountaineering or uh, something outdoors. Uh, and then when I find that I'm passionate about that, I can sp uh, spend vast amounts of time with little effort learning about these things. Uh, and as I learn about them, I can dig deeper and deeper and go down rabbit holes of information uh, and begin to develop that passion for learning in the same way someone who's had a bad experience in public schools may be very passionate about something in their life that there's knowledge out there they don't know helping them find a section in the library that has books on this topic they may finally find something that they're passionate about reading passionate enough to spend energy and time uh, in learning about this and as they grow and find that uh, that joy in getting more and more information, then we can begin to broaden uh, that passion and that energy uh, into something that may turn into a, a different career for them. Okay, wonderful. And I just want to touch on this really quickly because, you know, for, for the people who are, they, they have passions out there, there's so many resources, resources that you can learn from. You know, you have the library, all the books there. Then you also have resources on the internet. There's a whole bunch of books available online. There's courses, there's videos, and there's tons of people that you can also learn from. But I know one problem is some people, they might have lost their passion. Some people might believe they're not passionate about anything. But how can these people start to, you know, find what they're really passionate about starting from nothing? I think people have passions in their life that are undiscovered, like you say, uh, or buried underneath um, what they see as the real world. I have to make money. I have to raise a family. I have to do all these other things in life. But I think that they will always find the joy, maybe in what they, they do for fun. Uh, maybe it's something they um, watch on television. Are they passionate about sports? Or uh, if they go to the dentist, do they pick up the book on hunting or the outdoors? Um, they may not consider it a passion because it's been suppressed. Um, maybe they, they were raised and told, no, passion, passion is for people who have dreams. You need to get out there and make money. You need to get out there and raise a fan. So I think for whatever reason, these people's passions have been suppressed. Helping them unlock those passions by identifying where's even the, the faintest ember that glows in their life that uh, if only given the fuel would develop into a, a bigger passion. Thank you, Josh. I certainly agree with you because, you know, everyone has undiscovered passions and conventional wisdom would, would tell you that, you know, many of these passions, you know, a passion for cartoons or things such as that, you know, that's not a good passion to have because it doesn't make money. But this is conventional wisdom. And, you know, from what I found, conventional wisdom is always wrong because using the resources that you have available today, 
all the opportunities, you can turn any passion into a living so that you can learn about things that you're passionate about and do something with it so that you can, you know, make a living off of it so that you can support yourself, you know, build your dreams, go for your goals. So, you know, I think it just takes a little bit of thinking outside the box because there's so many resources, so many opportunities, so many different things that you can do out there in the world. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that makes life today so exciting. And are there any specific opportunities that you find exciting in the world right now? Uh, I really think that, you know, you talked a bit about uh, some of the resources we have of the internet uh, being a great resource for people to learn. Uh, I'm kind of the nerd who loves uh, exploring different topics that I, I may not ever get into. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, I, will, I will go down a rabbit hole on uh, YouTube of watching videos, and I think I ended up as an accidental ornithologist uh, <laughs> learning about birds. And after, <laughs> after a weekend on YouTube, I was going out buying binoculars and going to go bird watching. So. <laughs> Uh, funny. I, I think I like the that. I think the internet and the availability of uh, of information uh, is just astounding and is a great resource. I certainly agree. You know, there, there's just so many different things that you can learn. Like in the future, after I go through my career, my business, and everything, if I want to take time to learn about architecture and put that into into fruition, you know, I could do that easily. I could do it instantaneously from almost anywhere in the world. And I think that's what's so cool about the world today. And where do you see the world and all the opportunities available today? Where do you see it headed in the future? I really think that it's going to be a distributed um, level of uh, community and distributed level, level of learning in that uh, we are less and less bound by physical location. Kind of like you talked about, no matter where you are in the world, you can learn about architecture. In the same way, if somebody is interested in world history, uh, they may take a class on world history and their professor one week may be a professor from Cairo, Egypt. The next week it may be uh, a professor from India or China or Germany. Uh, they can begin to learn from the world uh, instead of having to uh, bring the world to them. Uh, so I think uh, as, learn as far as learning goes, we're going to see a more distributed uh, level of learning. Um, and I think the world's going to become more and more networked uh, and globalized in business, education, uh, and some various other arenas. Okay, perfect. I, I certainly agree with you. And that, that sounds very exciting to me because I always find that, you know, I don't know if this is just the way that I am, but, you know, when you have the, the same professor for an entire, like, six months period, eventually... You know, you need to mix things up a little bit. So I think it'd be cool to, well, I find it cool to have multiple professors. So you never know what you're going to get. You know, what are you going to learn from this person? What's their teaching style? What awesome information do they have to share? And that, that's something that I think will be exciting. And, and I'm curious, what else do you see for the future of education? Is there anything else you want to add for that? I think, um, you know, with the, the growth of computing and computational power and more super computers, um, we're going to see um, more and more students begin to do their own research via the internet, via computers. How do we learn about people? It's no longer just, uh, you know, there used to be an adage that psychology was the study of freshmen studying psychology. 
you had these large freshman classes and they were just available to do research on. Uh, <laughs> but now with, with the internet, with social media, you know, I think if somebody could harness all the Buzzfeed quizzes that I took and people took across the world, we could, we could utilize that information and use this meta uh, compilation of data to do research on uh, large, large numbers of people. And, and I think that increases the validity of that research. So in the same way, um, education is going to get more and more where students have access to large untapped pools of data um, and people to, to research, which will help um, more accurate research and more generalizable research to be done. Okay, I think that that certainly sounds exciting for me because there's there's just so much data out there, and you know we'll we'll continue to to figure out exactly what we can do with it. And have you done anything with this in your in your research yet? You know, I've been more and more uh, focused on the individual level uh, of research. These um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word where I'm not focused on does this apply to everyone. I'm focused on what does this mean to this one person, and as a, a burgeoning therapist, uh, being able to help that one person has become more and more my passion. Okay, I still think that's a, a an amazing thing to do, and I and I greatly appreciate you doing that for people out there. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. So one of the things that I do with the show as we start to wrap things up, I, it's, it's already been almost an hour now. I, I can't believe how the time has really you know, flown. But one of the things that I do with the show is I, I always lead or leave with the same question. And it's this, Josh, if you could only leave the audience with one piece of actionable advice, what would it be? I think actionable advice for, for your listeners is this. When you listen to those you love, listen to understand, not just to reply. And I think so often we're, we're bound up in these conversations where we're just listening to figure out what we're going to say back, but we miss the heart and the meaning of what people say. Uh, and it leads to some feelings of miscommunication, some, um, we're, they're not seeing us and understanding us and we're feeling invalidated. Uh, so when you listen to someone, listen for content and listen for emotional content. Um, so how do they feel when they say this? Are they upset? Are they happy? Are they content? Uh, are, they, are, they, are they frustrated? Uh, and then secondly, listen to understand what's, what are the, what's the exact content they're saying. Um, and then beyond this, um, repeat back what your understanding of what they've just said is. Um, if I say that, you know, I was really frustrated the other day when you uh, told me that I couldn't work on my project. Uh, and then the person hearing this would say, so it, you thought it was frustrating uh, when I uh, didn't let you work on the project. Yeah, that, you heard what I said. You understood what I said. And then once the other person understands it and you, you're comfortable with them understanding it, then their roles switch. The other person becomes the speaker and I become the listener. And I think this is a way that takes out um, anger, it takes out frustration and communication, and really fosters a deeper sense of uh, intimacy in that relationship. Thank you, Joshua. I really appreciate that advice because I'll certainly say that, you know, over the past I have been guilty of listening to reply instead of understand but I'd never heard anyone say that before. And I think that's an, an amazing way to frame it. So I'll certainly 
implement that in, into my life. And, and I really hope that for the listeners out there that you can also implement that into your life. So thank you, Josh. I greatly appreciate that. Definitely. So Josh, it was, it was amazing to have you on the Da Vinci Mindset podcast today. I think that we had a fantastic conversation about self-help, about helping other people, developing a love for learning and how to get over our past fears and traumas. So thank you for coming onto the show today. Definitely. It was a pleasure being here. Yeah, it was a pleasure to have you as well. So for the listeners out there, if you want to find out more about Joshua, Josh, where could they find you at? Well, they can go on Facebook. We have a, a page called Help Your Shelf, like a bookshelf, but we're going to help people <laughs> help them shelf. Uh, so it's Help Your Shelf. Uh, and we also have a website called helpyourshelf.net, uh, which has a link to our podcast, which is on iTunes and SoundCloud. Okay, thank you, Joshua. So to the listeners out there, I'll put a link to the Help Your Shelf Facebook page and to the website below this episode and in the blog and in the blog post. So to the listeners out there, I hope that you guys got a ton out of this episode. I certainly got a lot, and I hope that you guys got even more than I did. So once again, thank you for coming on the show today, Josh. It was amazing to have you on. Thank you for having me. So everyone out there, make sure you check out Josh's resources, everything that he's up to, and the Help Your Shelf podcast. It's going to be amazing. And until next time, we'll catch you guys on the next episode of the Da Vinci Mindset podcast. There we go. Thank you for coming on today, Josh.